Good morning, everybody. Hope you guys are doing good, good, and uh, glad to see you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you're new here, um, glad you came and joined us. Hope that God has already been uh, working in your heart and speaking to you, and um, pray he'll continue to do that as we get into his word. Um, if you're new, we are in a series uh, called Cultural Captivity. Uh, you may have missed last week. Um, if you are a regular attender as well, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. This week is going to be somewhat of a part two to that message, um, going a little deeper into some things that we talked about last week as we really um, began to dive into how we stand firm in culture when culture comes against so many of our beliefs and so much of our um, worldview. And so uh, today, um, we're going to continue this. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read a good bit of scripture this morning. So you can go ahead and turn there. Um, and, and we're going to read in beginning in chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Before I read, I, I want to share my heart just a little bit. Um, I've been praying a lot through this message. I haven't had a, a message or a time in a while that I felt probably more conviction about this message. Um, I think it's an extremely important message. I, I have even somewhat of, I always get nervous before I speak, but I have even more of a feeling of that this morning just a greater realization of handling God's word and the truth that it is and doing that in a way that is honorable and pleasing to the Lord and in a way that um, is effective for us as his people. And if I were to give this message a title, and I usually don't do that, I'd probably call it this, Propaganda, Politics, and Persecution. How culture has changed the church rather than the church changing culture. So with that, I'm going to read beginning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And this is what Timothy says. He's really at a point now where Paul is, uh, Apostle Paul is sort of handing the baton to Timothy, this young dis disciple of Jesus who is also a disciple of Paul, um, Paul has raised him up. Paul is now passing the baton. Paul knows that his time is short. He knows that he will soon depart. Um, he is going to die soon. And so he is handing this off and he's warning them as so much of scripture is against false teachers, people who will come in and dilute the gospel, people who will come in and teach false things. And he's warning him and encouraging him to stand firm and to help others stand firm in the truth. And he says this, Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. 
They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambre supposed Moses. So also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in, is, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. Paul's contrasting his life to those of the false teachers and telling Timothy, stand firm, you know what you've seen. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus, will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ, He says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who would judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Let's pray, Lord. We thank you for your word. God, I pray today that it will do exactly what you said it is to do, that it would correct, rebuke, Lord, train, teach, teaching us, Lord, your heart and your will, rebuking us, God, where we're out of it, correcting us back to it, and training us to stay in it. Lord, help us to be the people you've called us to be, that we, God, would finish the race well. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Anybody in here, you at maybe in high school, you maybe even in college, you ran track. Any track runners in here? Just a few. Um, so when I was in the seventh, eighth grade, our football coach made us do something in track. And so um, I actually, I don't know why, because I was not very fast, but he always had it in his mind that I should run the 440 or the 400 is what it's called now, but back then it was the 440 is what we called it. And I, he always had it in his mind, this was the race that I should run. And I ran it, but I wasn't any good at it. And so I would start out, and every race I ran in, I was winning the race halfway through the race. I'd start out as soon as they shoot the gun. Whoa, I'm gone. And I mean, I am flying and I am leaving everybody behind. But about the three-quarter mark, people were catching me and beginning to pass me. And this is no joke. The best finish I probably had was next to last. Like I might have beat one person one time, but, but I never finished well. I'd start out the gate well, but I never finished well. And the one statement in these passages that has gripped me is that Paul says, I have finished the race. He says, I have kept the faith. In other words, he's saying, I have remained faithful. I finished well. Through all the things I've been through, through all the challenges, through all the concern for the churches, Paul says, I finished well. Through all the nights I couldn't sleep because of worry and concern, He said, I finished well. I have remained faithful. And I wonder for us, is that our goal? Is that the thing that is on our mind, that is on our heart? Is that I have remained faithful in that time when we know or maybe it comes on us in an instant that we realize as we are about to go to depart, as Paul said, that we can say those same words. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And here's the thing. Faithfulness happens because of intentionality. It doesn't happen accidentally. God's word is like this plumb line. It's like a, a plumb line that, that shows us the standard. But our tendency is to drift from it. We don't accidentally stay in line with God's design and his heart and his will. That's why the word is used to teach, rebuke, correct, and train. If his standard is plumb and it's straight and it's right and it's perfect, we're like this. We don't sometimes intersect it for very long. So we have to become intentional 
if we're going to live in the standard, if we're going to finish well, if we're going to be faithful to the end, if we're going to run the race and finish it well. And here's the thing. We as the church are called to model Christ to the world. First John tells us that no one's seen God, but he says, when you love one another, when you love one another, it makes it complete. In other words, when people see us and we are reflecting Christ, they look at us and see a tangible representation of God. But for the church, culture has come in and changed the church rather than the church changing culture. And I want you to realize in 2 Timothy, in verses, in chapter 3, really the whole thing, he's setting some things in contrast. He's talking about these men, these false teachers who've come in and they're leading the church astray. They're contradicting the truth. And he begins with these false teachers and then he transitions to his example, but then he transitions to how the, the church is then wanting to hear more of what they say because it's more pleasing to their desires. And I want you to see this, that words are powerful. When you were little, you were probably told more than once when somebody said something ugly to you, you were told sticks and stones will break my bones, but what? That is a lie. It sounds good, but it is a lie. Words are powerful. Words are powerful. And one of the things that culture uses to come in and change the church is propaganda, is words to chip away. And Paul is saying, listen, this teaching, this stuff you're hearing, it is changing your culture. It is changing your mind. I told you last week that every bit of information that comes into your mind has the potential to shape it and change it in some way. And when we look at this, Paul is telling him, look, this teaching and this, this, this new information that you're getting, he's saying, look, it, it is going to come in and it's going to change culture in the church. It's going to change the way they think. It's going to begin to shape the worldview different. And he's warning Timothy, and he's warning the church, and he's warning us. And so he starts from false teachers and moves to its effects on those who hear it. And today, listen, we're bombarded with propaganda. And what culture knows is this. Guilt and shame are powerful motivators. Guilt and shame are powerful motivators. It's unfortunately why the church has used them as well. The church too often has not believed that the gospel will change people's hearts and motivate righteousness, so it's just guilted people into morality and spurts of good behavior. But what we hear, the propaganda around us, pushes us to think that Christianity is bad. I told you last week, we used to think, am I a bad Christian? Now we just think, is Christianity bad? 
Am I a bad person for holding to the beliefs that I have? And what we hear in the propaganda we're bombarded with causes us to shy away from having a biblical stance on things because we worry that somehow we're wrong. We hear it so much that we begin to wonder, am I wrong? Am I wrong in my beliefs? Am I wrong in my thinking? Have I been wrong all along? And all of this makes us feel guilty. Makes us feel like we don't actually love people. So we back down so we don't offend. It's made us back down from what it means to be a biblical man, to be a biblical woman, from traditional marriage, from the sanctity of life, because we've been convinced that it means we don't care about women. Culture uses words like choice, rights, freedom, and love because it's tough to argue with those words and because it makes us even wonder because these are things we want too, right? It makes the agenda that they push to seem right or fair or even loving because we desire those things. They sound right and they sound good but they are counterfeits of what God desires and what God designed. And it is so obvious. And, and, and I'm so tired of not, not talking about it. I'm so tired of when you do talk about it, everybody gets a look on their face like, can we say that? Can we really say that? When we look at even this whole gender identity thing, it's been tweaked and turned and it's been shaped and molded with words to, to, to try to make it sound okay. We've redefined words like man and woman or either have just don't have a definition for man and woman. They've been hijacked. Definitions for words have been made up to push the agenda. And we've gone so far with this that we're giving kids choices to be a boy or girl when they're still wondering if they're Superman. And I told you this is part two, right? I told you last week, we've got to be more concerned with winning their souls than we are winning the fight. So don't take this and run off and get on Facebook and start bashing people. Go get in their world and make a difference. Because it's easy to clap when I say something that appeals to your opinion. But it's a lot harder to love somebody that doesn't agree with your opinion. Propaganda, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie. The second one is politics. I'm gonna be honest with you. A lot of people get aggravated with me, even angry, that I won't talk about politics. Leading up to the election, if you wanna hear about politics, don't come here. I'm not spending the 40 minutes I have talking about politics. But today, I'm gonna to talk about it. And here's the thing I'll tell you about politics. Politics will not save you. 
Politics will not save you. A lot of you have put your hope in the wrong thing. And here's the hard truth of this. Because we have abandoned the great commission to go and make disciples, we look to politicians to change our nation. We look to appoint someone, a person, to go before us and to create some kind of theocracy. If we could just get a Christian president, we'll, we'll, we'll have a theocracy like the, the Jewish people did. We'll be like Israel. Ain't gonna happen. We have this mindset that if we can appoint this man to go before us, to represent the people, we'll be in good shape. It's kind of like the church wanting the pastor to go to God. Tell us what he's telling you so I can go out and do what I'm supposed to do. It's avoiding responsibility for what God's called us to do. God's called us to make disciples, to not lean on a politician to change the world. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, not because Donald Trump gets elected again, but because the church does what the church is designed to do and goes and makes disciples. Last time I said something like that, I had a guy want to fight me in the atrium. But you know what? Here's the honest truth. If you have a problem with that, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God's word. If you have a problem with God's word, you have a problem with God. So don't come take it up with me. If you want to argue with somebody, argue with him. But guess what? You're going to lose. We want somebody to create a theocracy like the Jews had under David or Solomon. But remember, the reason they had that is because they rejected the rule of God. And there's two problems with a theocracy or with us wanting this theocracy. In the Old Testament, the theocracy was that God was the God of the nation of Israel. But today, God is the God of the nations. He always had his heart set on the nations. He used the nation of Israel to bring Jesus into the world. But he's always had his heart set on the nations. The other problem with it, thinking a theocracy of some sort is going to cure all our ills is this. You can't legislate social justice or righteousness because it's a heart issue, not a legal one. If the law could create God's design in the world, then Jesus didn't have to die. You can have the most perfect law problem is we have a sinful heart and you can have a perfect standard but here's the truth you and I can't keep it we can legislate the greatest laws and I'm not saying we shouldn't but what I can tell you is that it's not going to fix it because till Jesus changes people's hearts 
We won't love the way we're called to love. It won't look like what it's called to look like. Galatians 2.21 tells us this. Paul says this. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be obtained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Law can't fix it. God changing people's hearts can, but we don't want to play the long game and make disciples. We wanna look for a quick fix and appoint some person to make us a Christian nation. We'd rather sit in cozy Bible studies and peop with people who are like-minded and bash liberals rather than do the hard work of ministry and make disciples. The third one is persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul is very clear in this. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He's saying, look, you can take the easy road and you might avoid it. He says, understand this, if you really follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. I will be persecuted for saying things like this. I will be talked about for saying things like this. But I do not want to stand before God one day and be asked the question, why didn't you say things like this? I care too much about your soul. And I want to finish faithful to not tell you the truth to not love you enough to tell you the truth. Love is not normalizing behavior. Love is calling people into the light. We look at this and he tells us we'll be persecuted. And here's the truth for so many of us. We don't mind wearing the label of Christian as long as it doesn't cost me anything. And, and undergoing persecution, it doesn't mean arguing. It means that we can love people who don't think like us because we're comfortable with the truth. I don't have to be defensive because I have nothing to defend. It's been said about God's word that God's word is like a lion in a cage. You don't have to defend that lion. You just have to let him out. And we are the same way. I don't have to get defensive in the persecution. I just have to stand on his word. And here's the truth for us, a reality for us that needs to sink in. Passages like 2 Timothy 3.12, they used to not have a context for us much in this country that we'll all undergo persecution. I can remember even thinking that myself a few years ago. Like, really, am I, am I gonna undergo persecution? Because I don't feel very persecuted for my beliefs. And now we're beginning to have a context for this. We're beginning to understand this. 
We can't be people who are comfortable wearing a Christian label, comfortable wearing a Christian t-shirt, comfortable putting a fish or a bumper sticker on my car, comfortable coming to church, comfortable going through the motions until it costs me something. The fear of persecution, being disliked, being talked about, being different, standing out, it costed me something with with my family or it costing me something with my job, it costs me something with my income, it costs me something with my, 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 um, my image, my reputation. The thought of that puts us in fear and the Bible says that fear is a snare and it becomes a snare to us living the life that God's called us to live. And I'll tell you this, John talked about community, he talked about connect groups. Community is more important than ever because we need to be encouraged. It's like he says here, he tells Timothy, he says to, to, to rebuke, correct, to encourage. Correct things you see that are wrong, rebuke and, and bring people back in line. Encourage them, exhort them to live the life they're called to live. And we see this, that community is more important than ever. to be reminded of the gospel and reminded of the truth and encouraged, exhorted to stand firm. When we look at this, God calls us to action. The key to the church changing culture rather than culture changing the church is changing the narrative by preparing, plowing, planting, praying, and harvesting. And I'm gonna walk through each one of those. And I know you're not gonna be able to go to lunch and tell the waitress that you're there to prepare, plow, plant, pray, and harvest. But I want you to get the heart of it. The first one is this, we prepare through pursuit. We prepare by pursuing Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul says this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Here's the thing that is so incredible about this. He's saying, Timothy, you need to get ready. He tells him, be prepared in verse two. Be prepared to preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, you need to fulfill your potential. He says, Timothy, don't abandon your potential. And see, we've abandoned our potential because of a lack of passion and preparedness. He tells us that we're to be prepared, to be ready. And he appeals to Timothy in this with three things, with three different things. The first one is this. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, these are the things he's, he's using as his motivation for charging and his facts for charging him with what he's telling him. He says, of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. He's saying, Timothy, understand one day, you will stand before God and you are, your works will be tested. What you have done or have not done will be tested. Now this for a Christian is not a heaven and hell thing but the works will be tested. Rewards will be given. And we will look him in the eye. Can you imagine looking, Jesus has got these, these, these blazing eyes, right? This glorified state. 
and knowing that we're to give account and our works be tested. Are we prepared to do those works? Are we doing those works that God says in Ephesians 2.10 were prepared for us beforehand? Do we even really believe this? He goes on and he says, in view of his appearing. In other words, he is coming back. And I pray it soon because that's kind of like my retirement plan. Otherwise, y'all gonna be listening to me for a long, long time. His appearing, he is coming back. The third one is this, and his kingdom. He will establish a kingdom. And Paul appeals to this because he says, Timothy, you're gonna go through these hard times is what Paul calls them in in 2 Timothy 3. You're gonna go through perilous times. But I charge you to stand firm. I charge you to stand firm, Timothy, because one day you're gonna stand before him and give account for your works. One day he will appear and one day he will establish his kingdom. Now you can live for this kingdom you're currently in or you can live for the kingdom that you're going to inherit. But you can't do both. So we prepare through pursuit. I read this thing about Charles Spurgeon and there was this man, his last name was something like Martineau. And Charles Spurgeon was a great Christian, great Christian preacher. This guy, Martineau, he was a Unitarian, so he denied the divinity of Jesus. This didn't square with Spurgeon's beliefs or our beliefs at all, but he admired this man. And someone once asked him, how can you admire him? You don't believe what he preaches. And Spurgeon says, no, but he does. He didn't admire his beliefs, but he admired his conviction. He admired his passion. And here's the challenge for us. Do we have that sense of passion and urgency? Because if we have a sense of urgency and passion in our eyes and in our voice, people will likely listen to what we say. But this has the potential for good and bad because it depends on what we are passionate and urgent about. We prepare through pursuit Listen, the second thing that we do is plow and we plow through service and listen to the attitude through which we serve people and present the word of God to them. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, he says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. He doesn't say, get on Facebook and rant and go crazy, pointing and yelling and screaming at people who don't think like you. He says, instruct, correct, rebuke, teach, train with great patience, with careful instruction. And then we plant, 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the word. There's this quote that's really popular in Christianity, and it's this, preach the word always and use words when necessary. That is a cute saying, but it is completely unbiblical. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. You can live the most moral life you want to, and it might cause you to, people to ask you, 
Why do you live this way? And this is the whole goal of the plowing, of the service. But we gotta be ready to speak God's word. 2 Timothy 4.2, we plant God's word. We plow through service. We serve others, even those not like us. Jesus served us, and we're certainly not like him. And then we plant God's word. We preach it. We teach it. We talk about it. We speak God's word in season and out of season. One person said that what that means is we speak it when it's convenient and when it's not. And then we water with prayer. We bathe it with prayer. We call on God's promises and, and stand on prayer in his word, knowing he will do what he says he will do. And then we harvest the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces with Jesus' invitation to come and follow him. We prepare, we plow, we plant, we water, we harvest. We harvest the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces with Jesus's invitation to follow him. And this invitation to come follow him is incredible. Jesus called Matthew or Peter and Andrew in Matthew 4, 19 to come follow and I'll make you fishers of people. But he also said, count the cost. The invitation is to come to life John 5, 24, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. In other words, you will not be judged for your sin because Jesus already paid the price for those. He invites us to a place of satisfaction and contentment because he's the bread of life and he says, you'll never go hungry, you'll never go thirsty if you come to me. But Jesus didn't come to feed our stomachs, he came to satisfy our souls. The invitation we give to people is to walk in the light because he says, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. To never walk in darkness, to never walk in, in sin, us, this sin-stained world, we can find this way to live out what is right. We can have clarity about who we are, why we're here. We can leave sin behind, find freedom from our past, hope for the future and security for eternity. And Jesus' invitation is that, and that is how we harvest, is with the good news of Christ, that he bids sinners to come to him, that he took care of those sins through his own death. We invite them to follow, to count the cost, to surrender, and to come to life. And this is our hope. This is our hope. Because we will stand before the living God to give account for our works. He will appear just as he promised. And he will establish a kingdom that those who are in Christ will inherit. And I pray that our passion would simply be to be found faithful when he returns. I wanna pray for us. Lord, thank you for your love for sinners, that you invite sinners like me to follow you. Lord, you know my heart. that it's not nearly as righteous as it should be.
And yet you love me anyway. You know my faults, Lord. And yet you forgive anyway. You gave grace where we deserve judgment. You gave mercy rather than wrath. And in view of your mercy, God, I pray we would offer our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. Lord, this is simply our reasonable act of worship. Lord, where our thinking is wrong, let your word correct it. Where our hearts are wrong, let your spirit purify it. And Lord, let us be consumed with the consuming fire of the living God that we would carry out everything that you've prepared for us to do and be found faithful in the end. In Jesus' name.